0: Welcome to the Global Business Builders Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders to explore the expansion of international business, including compliance, intel, and strategies that you need to know to expand your brand and leverage the global talent pool. Now, here's your host and global connector, Warren Spiewak.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Global Business Builders Podcast. You know, today's going to be a first for this show. I've got one of my trusted colleagues that I've worked with for, I wanna say a couple years now, Terry Cannon. If you're a fan of TED Talks, if you're into business growth, if you wanna talk international, this is gonna be the episode you wanna tune into. Before we kick it off, I'm going to start it off with you, Terry. Terry, you're my wingman today.
0: <laughs> yes, this is an honor and a privilege. You know, we've been talking about this for some time, and just the mere fact that I'm able to do this is fantastic. Thank well, you,
1: you know, so much. one of the things as we kind of launched this show and I had guests on and whatnot... You kind of shared with me Philippe Bussol. Before we get to Philippe, tell me a little bit about how you were introduced to him, what put him on the radar with you, and then share with me a little bit of what your goal is to hope to get into as we dive into the interview today.
0: Oh, this is excellent. Again, I'm excited and thrilled that Philippe has decided to join us. But I had met Philippe at ACG, where Philippe not only attend regularly, but serves on the board there with ACG Silicon Valley. And in speaking with him just for a moment I just understood I was speaking with just a comprehensive mind as it relates to business. And there was something about him that made me intrigue. And now we're going to explore why when we get a chance to get into the podcast. He was just someone that I felt that was not only genuine in terms of his person, but just also genuine in terms of his business acumen. And I just felt, hey, this would be a great Gentleman to connect with. And then I found out he had a TED talk and I listened to it and I was blown away by his insights. Me too on that
1: TED talk. And so with that, we're going to get into this interview. Philippe, very happy to have you here. Just for the audience, when Terry drops the name ACG, that's the Association of Corporate Growth. It's tremendous. Look it up. Can't say enough good things about the ACG. But Philippe, you are truly a growth expert. I did watch the TEDx video on YouTube, which was very impactful. I'm a 20-year entrepreneur and I felt like there wasn't one part of your TED Talk that I could argue with. I was like, yes, makes sense. Yes, makes sense. Like spot on. And you're a best-selling author. So with that, welcome Philippe and welcome to the Global Business Builders podcast.
2: You can tell you're with two fans here. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be on your podcast. Really happy to be so here today. First
1: things first, we're going to kind of just pick and prod you a little bit on some different topics, but just for starters, tell us where you're at today, like as far as location, I know you travel around a little bit and then kind of start us off with your experience working on the international front just for the audience to kind of put the pieces together.
2: Yeah, so again, thank you for having me on the show. I'm based here in Palo Alto in the heart of Silicon Valley. I have been in Silicon Valley for over 33 years now And I am French. I actually lived in different countries in Europe because I'm a military brat. And we were going from, you know, military basis to military basis. So, but I am a software guy and I wanted to start a software company. And I said, there is no better place to do this than in Silicon Valley. And so I moved here on January 6th, 1990, started my company and sold it. And I fell in love with the Valley and the, the vibes, the entrepreneurship, the excitement. And I've been trying to help company ever since I've been here, as I've been helped and and trying to give back to the community of entrepreneurs.
1: And interestingly, Terry, I don't know what you say about this, but like you get in that first few minutes of the TED Talk, I would have never known just in our initial conversation with Philippe that he's jumping out of airplanes, that he's part of this community (laughs) of skydivers. I feel like that says a lot. And it's one of those things, and this is why I love podcasting. You don't ever know what's going on behind the curtain with business people. We're always just so formal. We never know what are people's hobbies or what are the things that, to me, sometimes makes them more interesting, you know, getting into the topic of skydiving.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, we are in the business of helping companies grow faster. And one of the hardest part of this is to make them change and make them accept that, They don't want to go on with the status quo anymore. And change is really hard. And the reason it's hard is because you have to take risk. And what I like about skydiving is the most unnatural act. I mean, jumping out of an airplane, you know, that's flying at 15,000 feet is very, very counterintuitive. And your body and your brain tells you to not do it. It's like, don't do it. It's not a good idea. And so I studied to skydive because I wanted to go over that fear and really kind of be able to say, you know, I know my brain says no, but I just want to do it. I know it's safe, which is true scientifically. And it's this act of going over the fear, like giving a TED talk. I mean, going, doing things that are not really natural. And every time I've done this in my life, I've always learned something about myself. I've always progressed. I could, you know, move forward and do things that I thought I could never do before. And that's why I'm doing those things. And I'm not crazy. Skydiving is extremely safe. People think it's not... There is a much higher probability to die with a toaster than jumping out of an airplane and the reason is people are sticking their fork or their knife and they get electrocuted and they die and i'm talking about the number of deaths divided by the number of events so i'm doing this statistically correct so it's a very safe sport as long as you follow the rules i mean if you pull your shoot below 2000 feet not a good idea if you have a malfunction you may not have enough time to pull your reserve But as long as you follow the rules, you're perfectly safe and I never had any problem. I've done over a thousand jumps. So I'm not crazy, I'm not a risk taker, I understand what I'm doing. But it's just going over the other side of that frontier that to me I was always really exciting. I love that. And so with that, like and what a great point. It
1: is it's about having kind of knowledge and knowing that sometimes you just have to follow the process that's proven. Versus our intuition sometimes can be triggered by fear. I mean, scuba diving and exactly. skydiving kind of share that, and the idea that you're really doing something that is counterintuitive to your survival mechanism. So, we're going to get into two major things. One is I do, you know, I know Terry and I have a lot of questions for you related to Blue Dots Partners. I know that we kind of know the secret sauce behind your principles, where Blue Dots comes from. I think that'll be fun to touch on. And then we also do want to get into the book. You are a best-selling author. The book Aligning the Dots, another thing. I mean, it's a visual book. I mean, as far as there's components to it that make it to where you're not just reading about something, you're actually seeing how it works. And there's some tremendous shout-outs in here from significant leaders of companies like Best Buy and Creighton and Barrel and I mean the Logitech. There's just several different kudos that I've read about, not just this book, but just reading it myself created, you know, felt it myself and just reading the content. So let's start out with Blue Dots Partners and what is Blue Dots Partners value proposition?
2: Yeah, so Blue Dots is a management consulting firm that's based here in Palo Alto in Silicon Valley. And we do one thing and one thing only is we help company grow faster. I believe that if you want to create value, shareholder value, there is no other way to do it than to grow faster than the market in which you operates. You have to be the market. And if you grow faster than the market, by definition, you're increasing your market share. You're taking business away from your competition. And that's the only way to create sustainable shareholder value. And then the question is, well, okay, I want to grow faster. What do I do on Monday morning at eight o'clock to start doing this? And it's a deceptively simple question, but really hard to answer. It's the same nature of the question that says, well, it's Monday morning at eight o'clock. What do I do to be a good parent? And it's like, you don't even know where to start. So we want to help and we help company grow faster, but we do it in a very unique approach that as far as I know, nobody else has ever done, which is based on the fundamental notion of alignment. The maximum growth rate of any business can only be achieved when that business and its target market are perfectly aligned. So it's the misalignment between the business and its target market that makes the company slow down exactly the same way if you misalign gears in a mechanical watch, you will slow down and you will not you know, tick at the regular beat that you want. And eventually, you may slow down so much that you stop ticking in the same way. Company may slow down so much that they stop to be relevant and then they die. So it's this insight that really is the core of what we do. We understand what it means to be aligned with your market. We measure it scientifically. And then once we measure, the data is telling us what to do to rectify those misalignments. And we put together a growth playbook, which is think of it as an operating plan, that we give the management team and we say, that's your basically blueprint to start growing faster. And you should start implementing this on Monday morning at eight o'clock. And that's what we do at a very high level. Philippe, as you were talking in terms of, you know, revenue acceleration
0: can be a difficult chore for many businesses. How is it that you guys look at you know, the sales component of an organization, it seems like most companies start with the sales component, but what are the ways outside of sales that you guys help companies to really accelerate revenue growth and the shareholder interest?
2: Yeah, there is a temptation from the management team and the board to blame lack of growth to the sales organization. That's kind of a knee-jerk reaction that most companies have. It's like, well, we're not growing fast enough. It's because the sales team is not selling enough. We should fire the VP of sales and hire somebody else. That is basically not fundamentally understanding why the company is not growing as fast as it can. And in most cases, it is not relevant to sales. It's not because of sales. The sales team not delivering the numbers is just a symptom of the problem, but it's not the problem itself. So I give you an example There is a fundamental axis of alignment, which is the second axis of alignment in our methodology called A2, which is between the messaging and the perception. If you are not articulating and expressing your value proposition and your claim in a way that prospects understand, no matter what, they're not going to buy because they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And you may have the best sales guys. If that sales guy doesn't deliver that messaging, which should be crafted by marketing, in a way that's clear and sharp and straightforward, then the transaction doesn't happen. The prospect doesn't buy. So that has nothing to do with sales. That has everything to do with marketing. So this is just an example where the lack of growth doesn't come from the sales organization, but it comes from the marketing organization that hasn't been able to articulate and craft the right message and that the perception and the message are misaligned and the transaction doesn't happen.
1: So that's interesting. The idea of correlating messaging and perception to what degree or what would be an example of where the message versus perception like that we would all maybe be able to identify with where you've seen a company almost maybe saying it wrong or maybe talking too technically to a prospect?
2: Yeah, I mean, most companies, I mean, Apple is the best example of good alignment and actually bad alignment as well. I'll give you both. The good alignment is Apple and Steve Jobs never talked about MIPS and how fast your processor is and all that stuff. He talks about... You know, how can I change your life? How can I make your life better? How can you communicate with your parents better? He's not talking like the other PC manufacturer who used to talk about megahertz and clocking and all that stuff, which nobody which most people don't understand. That's a good alignment. The an example of bad alignment within Apple was the Newton, which was this device that nobody really knew what it does. And Apple had a laundry list of things that the device could do. And it's like people were completely lost and said, well, you mean I can do fax and I can do message and I can do this and I can do that and I can take notes. it's like at the end of the day, nobody was able to say, you should buy this device because in one sentence, there was no clear answer to that. And that was a huge fiasco at Apple. I mean, Newton didn't work out at all. So you can see even the same company making, you know, very good alignment and then very bad alignment on a different product line in terms of messaging versus perception. Yeah, I can't help but just point out that you
1: actually worked with Steve Jobs. You were in the company. A lot of times we talk to people and they tell us about things that went on in the marketplace. And it's from... What they read. You know, you were actually there. You've seen this and you know what that atmosphere was like. So, for our audience, I feel like that is such a huge contribution. And the fact that the things that you've seen being within Apple cannot imagine those moments where you're learning something as quickly as it's happening. And you're right, they did get it right. It's like, it's funny because I use Apple as an example a lot of times where, how many times, whenever salespeople are selling, they're like trying to tell all these statistics about their company and what they do and, and all this data that may or may not be interesting. But when you go into Apple, you're already sold. You already know what you want. You're not asking them, well, how many people are using an Apple? Like that's not even a question. But yet salespeople sometimes want to spend like the first 10 minutes of a presentation trying to build credibility through just explaining everything they
2: can about themselves yeah and salespeople they don't listen i mean i always joke i go into companies and i said most of your sales are crocodiles and they should be elephants and the guy doesn't understand and i said they're crocodiles because they have a big mouth and small ears and they should be elephant big ears and small mouth and then they get it and it's like if you call apple today in fact i would encourage any of you listeners to do that you call the 800 number at apple the first question they ask is, how can I help you? If you call Verizon or AT&T or American Airlines, the first question is like, "Is what's your 25-digit you know, account number? Like, well, I don't have a 25. I don't know. And as, what's your last four digits of your social security? And what's your password? And what's your address? Like, why are you asking me all that? I've got a problem. My problem is not that. Why don't you ask me what help I need? And then you spend 10 minutes on the phone and say, oh, I'm the wrong guy because I'm the technician for this. And your problem is that. Let me transfer you. And then they transfer and they say, well, the office is closed. You have to call (laughs) Monday morning and later. Mm -hmm. And it's like that's the difference between Apple and all those companies. Not understanding and listening. And Apple doesn't sell. Apple helps. That's very, very different. That's fantastic analogy. I certainly want to, I'd be remiss,
0: Philippe, if I didn't want to park here a little bit with your experience in Apple. Obviously, in 1997, you were there right at the, you know, it seems like the launching of e-commerce. Tell us about that experience when you were in kind of working in the international division that kind of helped to push Apple in the way of e-commerce and those sorts of things. I think it would be interesting for our listeners to know.
2: Yeah. So when I joined Apple, it was the very beginning of the internet. I joined in 96, you know, Netscape went public in August, 95. The commercial internet was just really starting. Dell was the one selling direct over the internet at the time and on the phone, mostly on the phone, but a little bit on the internet. I actually came up with this idea that we should sell direct our goods and our computers on the internet. And, you know, I went, you know, Michael Spindler was the CEO and and they were very unreceptive to the idea. They said, well, we cannot compete with our channels. We're never going to do that. And then, you know, we bought Next and Steve was very convinced right away that this was a good idea. In the meantime, we developed the e-commerce backend and then we launched in November 98 and... The problem I had is that it was a little bit early. The idea I had back in 96, 97 was a little bit early to the market. But nevertheless, we did it. And I started from scratch and ran it to about $350 million in revenue. And of course, now it's $55 billion, I think it did last year. So it's a very key component. But I was determined to make it happen. I knew that selling over the internet was going to be really critical. And the reason was we didn't have any direct relationship with our customers at Apple, because we were channel of the revenue went through channel. So when you bought a Mac at the time, you would go to a CompUSA store and you would talk to CompUSA, you would not talk to Apple. And I said, we need to have a direct relationship with our customers. They need to be able to buy from us directly. Because that emotional connection doesn't exist today. And Steve was very receptive to that and understood that. And, you know, thankfully, he was behind the idea and we made it happen and it became a huge success. So
1: Fascinating. The idea, like, you know, just thinking of Apple and you mentioned CompUSA, which because I'm born in the 70s, I actually remember that as a retailer. But so true. The idea of a brand actually having interactions with their customers, the end users, How important is that? And then to what you're saying, like in that Verizon experience, that's so true. It's like, you just want help. And there's one thing is for somebody to feel like you have an emotional IQ and you care about what's going on, very different than you're just a number. So tell me your number, tell me your code, tell me which one of these eight things do you think best describes your problem? And it's never one of those eight usually. And I just experienced this the other day. My kids were in Italy with their mom. And so- My daughter calls me, and I'm not throwing Verizon under the bus because it ultimately got handled, but one daughter's phone just would not work. So when you get to the map, is it a technical issue? Is it this? It's like, well, it's a combination. So I'm just really just want somebody to hop on the phone. It was handled okay, but I think all of us acknowledge that, and internationally, the idea of... Going back to late 90s and you being part of this thing with Steve Jobs and this original launch says so much.
2: Yeah. And by the way, I always joke, but it's not complete joke, actually, which is how I lost my hair working directly (laughs) for Steve Jobs. Uh, Yes. Yeah, I'm sure
1: there was a little bit of a stress factor there. (laughs) So then like going back to Blue Dot's partners, I understand the value proposition, What is your favorite thing to do within what you're doing today? Like, where do you get really excited where you meet an entrepreneur or an organization? You're looking under the hood a bit. They understand your value and what you bring to the table. What are the things that kind of get you flowing when it comes to starting to revamp an organization and how they're touching the marketplace?
2: Yeah, I think that it's when the light bulb goes off, when we tell them, hey, you're misaligned here for that reason. Here is the data. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is true. And then they realize, they understand fundamentally why they are not growing fast enough. That pivotal moment, I think, is really exciting to us. It's a bit like a doctor that shows you, says, come with me, I'm going to show you something. And he shows you the x-ray and he shows you this very fine line on the bone. And you go like this... And they say, well, you see that line, that's a fracture, and that's the problem you have. And then you're like, okay, now I understand what I have. And to me, it's the joy of being that doctor and showing that line to our clients. That's the most exciting thing. And the other thing that's exciting is sometimes it's a fracture, sometimes it's lung cancer, sometimes it's COVID. We never know what the issue is, which is really interesting. And I think that makes you know makes the whole journey of to discover what the misalignments are really exciting, and there's never a dull moment. And every company is like a child; they are different, and so I really enjoy that that diversity. And Philippe, when you help to kind of.
0: Help them to see, you know, entrepreneurs, business professionals, business leaders see, you know, where there's areas of maybe misalignment. How do you also help them to move to taking the risks to want to change that? Because obviously, to see the problems, to see the areas of misalignment, but then to take them in another direction where they are enthused about. Moving forward in creating solutions to make changes, how do you go about that work? Because I think that's really part of the fascinating work as kind of a, you know a business growth aspect.
2: Yeah, it's a really good question, and the short answer is we don't. Which I know is counterintuitive, but we don't force them to change. And I think the best analogy is like we're a doctor, where our job is to diagnose what the issue is, which is what the misalignments are and then put together a growth playbook, which is a prescription, and we give them and we sell them. The product they buy from us is that prescription based on our knowledge and expertise. Whether they decide to take the peers or not is completely up to them. So when I studied Blue Dots with John, with my partner, who is now retired, I told him, I said, I don't want to be in the business of convincing people to do things. I've paid my dues. I've done that at Apple. I've done that on the board of 25 companies, 24 companies, and it's like, you know, what I want to do is I want to show the path. I want to illuminate that path and whether they want to go on that path or not is up to them. And I don't really care. I mean, of course I care like a doctor would care. If a doctor gives you a medicine and you said, well, I'm not going to take the pills. The doctor goes like, well, I cannot force you to take the pills. What I, the only thing I can tell you is if I were in your shoes, if I had exactly what you had, I would take the pills because it works. But if you don't want, I cannot do anything. I've done my job as a doctor, which is to give you the best prescription based on what I found. So, And in fact, it's interesting. Some of our clients are religious about the growth playbook and they implement every single piece of it. And other clients, if I take the other extreme, I'm just going to sit on him and I always joke with them and say, well, why did you hire us then if you're not willing to change? Because they always tell us at the beginning that they are willing to change. There's two things that always tell us. One is I tell the prospect, I said. If there is no path to the kind of growth number that you want, I will tell you, and you're not going to like it, are you willing to accept that? And they always said yes, right? And I always say, if you want to feel good and spend a million dollars or half a million dollars, you should hire McKinsey or Bain or BCG. They are great at that. And I love them. I have a lot of respect for what they do. It's just not who we are. And I said, you should do that. But if you want a doctor, if we find lung cancer stage three, we'll tell you we're not going to sugarcoat it. We're not going to hide it. We're going to show you that data. We're going to show you that x-ray and we're going to show you how bad the fracture is. And they always say, oh, no problem. That's I can take it. I'm fine. I'm a CEO. I'm a big boy or I'm a bigger, whatever. I can take it. And then the other thing I said before the us, I said, are you willing to change? Well, of course, I'm willing to change. I wouldn't hire you otherwise. I said, you know, if you want to lose weight, you're probably going to have to go on a treadmill. It's hard. Do you have a treadmill? No. Okay. Well, just order one right now because you're going <laughs> to. Are you willing to step on it for an hour every day and sweat and all that? Oh yeah, yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. And what we observe is two things. One is when there is a bad news, they don't like it. So we had a client in Switzerland, which I won't name. It's a billion dollar company. We were presenting to the board. It was a very Swiss-German, very well, you know, bottom-up board. And we told them there's no growth path. You know, the company or this division that we were hired for just doesn't have a growth rate. And the CEO looked at me and he says, I can't tell whether I love you or hate you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I love the work you've done. I cannot argue with it. I understand everything you've done. I understand the math. I understand the data. But I hate the conclusion. And I said, yes, remember when we had the discussion, you know, the problem is this division has cancer. And of course, you don't want to hear that. But you know, this is what we recommend we do, and, and so forth. And so they hated our, I mean, they liked and they respected what we did, but they didn't like the conclusion. And then the other thing is you know, they don't want to execute it because it's hard. Yes. And so they are looking at it, and they say, well, you prescribed three pills. You know, I like the blue pill and the red pill, but I don't like the white pill. I'm not going to take it. And I said, really, is this what you would do with the doctor? You would have that discussion? He said, no, no, if the doctor gives me all the pills, I'll take everything. I said, this is not a trial. This is the growth playbook you need to execute. And we crafted it in a way that you have to do all of that. Everything you don't need to do is not in the playbook by definition. And so it's really interesting. But changing is really hard. And it takes a lot of courage and guts for the CEO and the management team to say, okay, we know what to do now, and we actually are going to.
1: Okay, do it. so that is powerful, and yeah, change is hard. Here's a question I have for you: Culture is very powerful. You always hear "culture eats strategy for lunch," is what they say. You meet with a the CEO; they actually are the ones that get to choose what direction to go in now you got this trickle down responsibility you've got to take that vision which for this team could be a little bit new could be a big change or it could be just adding a few ingredients based on what your diagnosis is so now they got to go down through you got your marketing department potentially because i know messaging and perception is a big part of your system then you're going into this sales team going back to culture There always is a shift that happens when you might be telling employees, you're telling your teams, hey, we're going to pivot a little bit. We're going to try it this way. What are your words on that? Like When it comes to leadership and that trickle-down effect of information and strategy, what are the winning things that you see work and what are maybe some things leadership might be making a mistake? Because I do think trust in a team is super important, but there also is the responsibility to you got to like have some leadership there to really get it going at the ground
2: floor level. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's absolutely true. So let me make a couple of comments. One is that we never developed a growth playbook outside what we call the feasibility envelope, right? So if an eight-year-old kid wants to run a marathon next week, it's like, we know he can't do it. So trying to help them do that would be irresponsible. So we never... The growth playbook we know can be executed by the company. We never ask them to do things that we know they can do. And culture is a big component of that. And organizational management is a big component of that. So that's the first comment. The second comment is that the mistake that CEOs and management teams make a lot is they try to do it on an incremental basis. So they try to be very sequential and we say, no... You have to say it's Monday morning, 8 o'clock, we're changing. And we're going to make massive change. And here is the path. Here is the plan. Here is how it affects every single organization. It is how I'm going to engage with the middle management of the company. Here is how I'm going to drive that change. Now, we call that the internal alignment. It's actually the fifth dimension. We have four external alignments axis of alignments between the company and the market. And then we have four plus one. And the last one is the internal alignment, which is actually the last chapter of the book. And that is so critical because if they are not internally aligned, then they will not execute the four external alignments and they're not going to grow. So we actually, part of the growth playbook is how do you implement the four external alignments in a way that the culture can absorb it in a way that it can be done in a thoughtful way, and in a way that you're going to be successful. And we spend a lot of time with that. And we can actually help them implement the change if they would like to. So we can assist, we can drive it, we can be a very active participant, which in some cases we are, and really help them to make sure they're successful. But it has to come from the top down, and there has to be a communication plan. It has to be thoughtful. It's just not like you wake up and say, well, everything's going to change, and then nothing is changing. You have to drive it. It's a lot of hard work. Yes. Culture and driving those changes, as you
0: mentioned, are definitely, I'm sure, a key aspect of things. You mentioned the growth playbook, and I was really struck by your book, and we'll get into the A4 precision, the aligning of dots aspects of the book. But I was struck by the fact that the growth playbook, you present those 12 questions or so, I think, early on in the book. And I was just struck by that because normally when I read books, those kind of questions are either at the end of the book or in the middle of the book. Why did you position the growth playbook at the beginning of the book? Is that to kind of give you an assessment of culture, an assessment of those things?
2: Yeah. So it's called the Business Alignment Score. It's actually a tool that's available on our website, which is bluedotspartners.com with two S's. It's 12 questions. They are very provocative they are actually really hard to answer in most of the part, even though they are simple questions. It's done by the CEO. And once that is done, we can start, we give them a measurement of the four plus one axis of alignment. So we have a coefficient of alignment from zero to 100% along each of those five axes. And the idea of doing that is to make the CEO aware that maybe the company is not as well aligned as he or she might think it is. Now, it's not based on the market truth. We don't talk to customers or prospects. It's a very fast, provocative tool, if you will. And of course, when the CEO realizes that they're not quite aligned on the second axis or the third axis, then we want to invite them to start thinking about those alignments and use some of the tools that we developed, that we published in the book or contact us and we can maybe help them. Yes. And just a follow-up, obviously, we want to be
0: able to share the four axes of alignment as well. And I know you do a great job in the book in terms of talking about uh, Sylvia's story. Would you care to walk us through those four axes and you know the significance of them and their importance?
2: Yeah. So the four universal axes of alignment. And, and the other thing that's interesting is that those alignments are absolutely universal. So I can take a cafe on the left bank in Paris, or I can take Tesla, or American Airlines, or I can take a startup or or just a CEO with a crazy idea and five employees trying to execute this idea. And they apply the exact same way. There is no difference based on who you are, how big you are, or where you are, or what you do. So the first axis is the claim that the business makes and the pain that the customer has must be aligned. Right, So if you come to me, Terry, with a headache and I show you a stomachache pill, you're going to say, well, you know, my pain is my head. It's not my stomach. You will never buy the pill. The second axis, which is the one we talked about earlier, which is the axis of alignment between the perception and the message. So let's assume I have a pill for your headache. It'll be gone in 10 minutes. But I describe it to you in Korean. I'm assuming you don't speak Korean. Then you will never buy the pill, even though it's the perfect pill for you. But you just don't understand what I'm talking about. It's like, what is this guy talking about? You're never going to buy the pill. You're never going to buy my product. That's I barely, same. I barely speak English, by the way, Philippe. So yeah, no Korean. All you right. know, I used to do it in <laughs> French, and people say, "Well, I speak French." So this <laughs> now I'm taking less risk, right? Although it's possible you speak Korean, but I'm taking the risk. The third one is the way customers want to buy and the way the product is sold in the marketplace. Those two things have to be aligned. So if I said, Terry, you can buy my product, but you have to fly to New York, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, I'm here in the Bay Area or wherever you are. Why do I have to go there? I just want to walk to my pharmacy and buy the pill over there. That's the third axis of alignment. And then the fourth one is my favorite one called I Stole It Out of the Apple Playbook. Which is, you know, one of the big lessons I learned working for Steve, which is I realized, and it took me a while, but I realized one day that there is only one business on this planet, that everybody's the exact same business. And, you know, people always think, well, I'm in the airline, you know, moving passenger business, or I'm in the cafe business, I deliver good coffee to my customers, or, you know, I'm a hairdresser. And it's like, no, you're really in the same business. And that unique business is the manufacturing and delivery of delight, Once you understand that everybody is in that one single business, then the question of alignment is what is the alignment between the expected delight and what you actually deliver to your customer, regardless of whether it's a haircut or an airplane ticket or or a car. But that delight expectation that, by the way, you should influence as your business, you actually have the privilege to set that expectation. Don't let anybody else do it. But that expectation has to be met with what is actually delivered to that customer, so imagine going back to my pill analogy, you take the pill and instead of having a better headache, you got you know a rash on the skin and you feel dizzy. Well, obviously that's not what you expected. And so I'm not going to grow because what I delivered to you wasn't aligned with what you expected. So those are the four external axes of alignment. The pain has to be aligned with the claim. The message has to be aligned with the perception. The way you sell has to be aligned with the way customers want to buy. And then what you deliver has to be aligned with what they expect in terms of delight. And then the fifth axis of alignment, which is the one I talked about earlier, which is the internal alignment, which is really separate, but that's part of the execution of the growth playbook. So those are the four plus one universal axis of alignment, and again, they apply to any business, regardless of its size, its location, or what it actually does. What I
1: love so about how you wrote matter. this book, though, it's someone can start off with, let's just start with one of the first axis items: the the pain versus claim, right? While you're reading this, and I would even say, if you're someone who doesn't read, just watch the TED Talk. If you watch it, what you could easily do is hit the pause button, and just hearing something as simple as pain versus claim and understanding the philosophy there, it will inspire you about your brand. It will inspire you about what solutions you're offering your customers, because it just promotes thought, right? And with the book, you get a chance to do that, and you get to go line item by line item, And going back to sales, because a lot of times when people are going, you know, if they're expanding their business outside of their home country, it's usually because they found a marketplace where they think there's a revenue opportunity, right? One of the things that has just drives me mad, and this also goes on in my Oil and Gas Global Network show where we do it's the Oil and Gas Pitch podcast. When people are pitching based on just mathematics and just matrix, and then on top of that, they're coaching and leading their sales teams based on a matrix, what I don't like about that, and I'm not saying it doesn't have a necessary part of leadership, but what I don't like about it is when you're sharing your value proposition you should mostly be thinking about what your clients and your prospects get from the relationship. You want to be more valuable to the people you're doing business with than what they are to you. Like you want to add so much value. And what happens a lot of times, and this goes from whether people are, you know, selling commodities or whatnot, depending just what, no matter what really vertical they're in, Sometimes I just get stick to going, well, it takes 50 of this to get 12 of those, and then maybe we'll convert three of them. And that's kind of a sad way to think. When I dive into just that delight, it's like how many companies are getting this wrong? They're not thinking about what are you doing when you do convert the client? Because the fact is, is if you onboard 150 new clients and they're all miserable and they're all not enjoying the experience you just wasted all of that time, all of that investment, all of that money for client acquisition because you're getting it wrong behind the curtain. And what I love about this entire book is there's nothing left behind. Like somebody reading this book, going back to your concept of they could be in the infancy stage just doing a startup or they could be as big as a $1 billion company. There's things that we could all be doing and Amazon's a great example of that. I never thought, when I heard Amazon was buying Whole Foods, I didn't think much of it, but then when I find out, as long as I bring my app out and I have Prime, I get a discount, suddenly that becomes more part of my daily rituals, which in turn makes me have a better experience with Amazon when I'm purchasing things. It's this idea of like focusing on like, tying things together and making it user-friendly.
2: Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. I think they the other comment I would make, because it always make me laugh, is people talk about the funnel, right? They have the top of the funnel, and then they have the middle of the funnel, and the end of the funnel. And so it goes like this. And I always tell them, I said, you got the wrong image in your head. The funnel is the worst thing you can do. What you want is a cylinder. You start with 100 prospects, and you close 100 prospects. You don't want the funnel. And... It's very counterintuitive, but we push a lot of our clients to dequalified prospect very quickly. We measure the velocity of disqualification because it's a key metrics. It's like, how fast do you understand that this prospect is wrong for any reason or that he or she will never buy? And don't bang your head against that wall. That prospect should not even be in your funnel. And so it's a very counterintuitive, and and marketing people, lead gen people, love you know. Well, I sent you twelve hundred leads last month. It's like, yeah, but they were all crap, and they were all not qualified. Like, why is this helping anybody in the company? It's a waste of time and it's a waste of resource, and it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the entire you know sales motions, and it's terrible. And that's what yeah, that
1: one is really an important one. The qualified leads, knowing that they have the need, that they have the authority, and they
0: have a timeline. Would that lead into kind of the market segmentation that you talk about in the book, Philippe, in terms of, you know, really being able to well define your market in order for you to obtain maximum alignment? Or when you talk about the different aspects of the funnel, because the funnel you just describe is the funnel that I normally see. It's the funnel that actually funnels down to a small segment as opposed to kind of the straight down funnel that you mentioned. Would market segmentation be
2: an aspect of what you're referring to? Yeah, right? I think it's a critical component. It's not everything, but it's a critical component. Understanding that your market is not uniform, that you know the pain that you're addressing is perceived differently depending on who it is, and understanding the taxonomy of the definition of the market segmentation is critical. In other words, a lot of companies segment their market by size of customer. Well, this guy is buying $10 million of product, this guy is buying a million, this guy is buying only $100,000, or they do it by geography. You know, we have the west side and the you know east coast, and we have the middle, and we have, you know, Canada, or they define it by the size of that customer. This is a billion dollar business, this is a $10 million company, and so on and so forth. And I always ask, I say, "Well, how did you come up with the definition of that segmentation? Why is the size so important? And in many, many cases, they just apply the wrong lens. They will look at it in, in a myopic way, and they do it because everybody else is doing it this way. That's typically the answer I get. But they are not thinking of, okay, now that we've identified the pain, there are various levels of pain or degrees of pain. And how do we even know if somebody has the pain? Because... We can ask them on the phone because we don't know who they are. We don't have their contact information yet. So what are the proxy that will show me that they truly have the pain that I'm addressing or my claim is aligned? And so the whole thinking of pressure segmentation, the market pressure segmentation is to really define the taxonomy and the framework that then defines all your market segments. And then you can look at those market segments and say, okay, we have... 17 segments, we're only going to go after three. And this is our number one, our number two, our number three. Forget about everything else. We don't even talk to them. We don't market to them. We don't talk to them. Maybe if they call us, you know, as an inbound call, we'll, we'll respond. But we're not spending any money outreaching to them. And again, that's an exercise that most companies we work with are not doing or haven't really done thought
1: totally. Yeah. I know we got a few minutes left of the interview, but I wanna pivot briefly, Philippe, before we I know Terry and I have some questions for you, just more from a personal standpoint of you being a business leader and operating these companies and writing the book. But before we go there, I just want to ask if somebody's listening to this and they wanna maybe explore working with you or get a consultation. What is the process and like what is the usual time frame it takes to get connected with you guys?
2: Well, I mean the way to connect with me is very easy. LinkedIn, you know, is probably the best way to just connect with me on LinkedIn and say, "Hey, I heard you on that podcast." And then they can go on bluedotspartners.com again with an s at the end of dot and at the end of partner. There is a contact linked over there and then that get more information and yeah, I think that's the best way to get it.
1: Terrific. Tested. And I will add all of Philippe's contact information in the show notes so you guys can just click and connect. It'll be real easy.
2: And again, Warren, if they you can't sleep at night, they can always. Oh, sleep that's back. right. Uh-huh. Yes, that's right. That is much better than medicine. <laughs> First of all, it's a lot cheaper. Secondly, there is no risk yeah, of addiction. Yeah, that's right. So. And no. tell they would fall asleep really so for quickly. for those of you on the uh,
1: audio version of the podcast, basically Philippe just showed me his book and said, "If you can't sleep at night, just start reading the book, and you'll be out in five minutes or less." But the truth is, he told me the same thing when I got the book,
2: and it's a lie. He's lying. It's
1: actually really. Oh,
2: on a second, I know why. It's because you drink way too much coffee, Warren. <laughs> I do. I do do problem. that.
1: Like I'm
0: big time on my coffee. That's the problem. I drink only tea here, Philippe, and I found myself fascinated with the book, and I was uh, up with it. Gonna it you, but,
2: I'm not going to ask you what <laughs> you smoke, but anyway.
0: This is, you know. That's a good comeback. All right, so then. just
1: a few quick things before we go, because I sense you have an accent. I know you're from somewhere. Obviously, you're not from the US. I say that. I'm from Silicon Valley, yeah, right. By the way. Exactly. Which, by the way, is it raining over there? I know like we're recording this during not, um, the hurricane anything. was just landing. Yeah.
2: No, no, it's uh, Southern California has been affected. Yeah, I was but wondering if it made we're... it that far to you guys. Well, a
1: couple of quick things. What tool do you think is super helpful for you in business? Like, what do you find yourself as a business professional, whether it's today or going back in time, that you really have found really has helped you be productive or kind of keep
2: your ducks in a row? Well, I think it's just figuring what really matters. And one of the lessons I learned from Steve is the notion of being focused, and it defines it as saying no to important things. It's very easy to say no to things that you don't want to do anyway. You know you're not going to do so you're going to say no. Well, that's not hard. What's hard is you have two things that are really important to you, and you have to choose one of the two. You have to say no to one of the two. So being extremely focused, obsessively focused, which Steve was, he was the most focused, intensely focused person I've ever met, I think it's really important. The second advice I give is really build connection, but they have to be authentic and truthful. You have to be there to help people, not try to sell, not try to go after the transaction, just say, how can I help you? Is there anything I can do to help you? And I've been blessed to have been helped by so many people and I just want to give back. I just That's why I work with entrepreneurs and I'm on the board of small companies and young companies because I want to help them avoid making the mistakes I've made. And so network, but network in a positive way. And I think caring about people's story is critical. I'm just curious about, you know, Warren, what is your story? And and, and Harry, you know, I'm really interested in the story. I'm not asking just to flatter you or for whatever. There is no calculation. It's like, I do want to know. Everybody has a fascinating story. It's like, I, I want to discover what it is. And that to me... It's really important.
1: And then Terry, I do want to give you a chance to hit him with another question, but I do know before we close this out, what I'm really, something I have to do, cause it's just like an, I got to do it for the sake of the show is I always love to talk about international, just like one international business story that whether it was from before you moved to California or not, we'll get to that. But before we do, and we'll close it out
0: with that, Terry, what do you have for us? Yeah, I was just kind of really curious in one sense, Philippe, on how you met John, your, you know, co-partner at Blue Dots. Did you guys meet at a coffee shop? How did that occur?
2: We actually, we did, yeah. So, he was introduced by Chris Kosher, who actually used to work for John. And Chris is somebody I've known for a while and John was running the IoT, the Internet of Things group at HP. And I was really interested in what they were doing. And so, you know, I went, John lives in, was in San Francisco at the time. We had coffee there. And I really liked him. And then he was the CEO. After that, he became the CEO of a VC company. He sold the company. And I asked John, I said, what are you going to do next? And he says, well, I don't know. I said, are you going to be a CEO again? He says, no. I said, I've been CEO of three companies. I want to do something else. And I told him, I said, look, I have this crazy idea of alignment, and I'm looking for a partner. Would you be open to having dinner? So we had dinner at Infonayo here in Palo Alto. And at the end of the dinner, I said, John, I want you to be a partner. Why don't you do it? And I barely knew him, but I knew I just intuitively really liked him. And he had a high level of integrity and honesty. And it just clicked, and we worked together for over five years and never had any problem. He was a fantastic person, really fantastic partner.
1: That's awesome. All right. I know, I know. We got to close the episode. It's hard, though. It's like we
0: could talk for hours. He's so fascinating, man. It's, I believe it's the type of guy you could just really just talk to. And that's what I really Kind of really, almost admire and get that sense of inspiration. In the sense that you know, he makes you feel as if you know you could be anywhere from any walk of life. He's going to want to know your story, and you're going to feel just comfortable just talking to him. Whether it's in this form in the podcast, one hundred
1: percent. And by the way, man, Terry, it's tough. It is This is, is tough. your first ever podcast interview. I got a kudos to you. Awesome job. Thank you. Before we shut it down, Philippe. So international. You. you I mean, you've got a couple of different countries in your background what can you share something for those that might have global aspirations maybe for some of those companies that are looking into new marketplaces anything that you could share or would like to share about international business and things to consider or cultures or whatnot
2: yeah so i actually was born in germany just because my dad was stationed there but i'm french and i spent you know i studied in paris for many years i think the best advice i can give is the difference of culture is probably much bigger than you think it is. And, you know, French people coming to the U.S. think, well, it's a bit like France. Well, it's not like France at all. In fact, it's completely different. The other advice is don't try to replicate, don't try to take your culture with you and try to have the world adapt to you within your culture, but do the opposite. Forget about your culture and just immediately meet with people from that country, network, get friends, and just forget everything you know about your own culture because it doesn't apply and try to really understand how it works. And, you know, I don't have many French friends here. And there is a huge French community, over 40,000 French people in the Bay Area and in Napa. But most of my friends are from India and China and, you know, and other countries. And of course, the US and Canada there is no French people in blue dots. You know, it's just adapt to the culture and try to understand how it works because you're going to have to play by their rules, not the way it works in your country. So i give you an example. I came from one of the best schools in France, which is Ecole Normale. It's like MIT and, you know, those schools where I did my PhD in physics. When I came here, I mean, in France, everybody knows that school. And when I came here, I said, well, I studied there. And people are like, what's that? <laughs> and it's like, so my diploma value went from 100 on a scale of 0 to 100 to 2 because it's like people had no concept of what school it was and I quickly learned that it was irrelevant. What I did was irrelevant. They don't care. They don't understand. It's like there's no point. So it's like, okay, well, my diploma is worth 0 here and that's okay. I was perfectly fine with it. So that's just an example of the way. Such a great point. Yeah. Let me just, I know we're
0: going to close things out here, but I would be remiss, Philippe, if I didn't ask, do you think there are some challenges with alignment with as it relates on the global landscape, because obviously we are dealing with a world now that is, you know, borderless. And so when it comes to alignments to where you have businesses that are now looking to expand into new markets, dealing with different cultures, et cetera, do you find that there's certain aspects of alignments in your four areas of alignments that Seems
2: like they might be more challenging in the international landscape than maybe U.S. Yeah, I think the second one, which is again the messaging versus the perception, because the way people want to message their claim is they come with their culture and their background, and what they don't realize is that it doesn't resonate. You know, the analogy as you know, as I gave this example of my diploma, it just doesn't work, and it's hard for them to understand that they just speak a different language. And so that's probably the most challenging one, I would say. And then maybe the way to sell, because like in Europe, you transact in a very different way when you want to sell at least software and SaaS solutions. And it's very hard for European people to understand that people don't buy in the same way. They are not as technical. They don't understand. It's a very different language. And so the faster you understand that you have to trash everything you know, forget about everything you know, And try to really understand what makes people tick here, which is very different. The faster you can understand that difference, the better off and the more successful you get.
1: That's powerful. Well, guys, look, Philippe Bisou. Did I say it? Bisou? (laughs) Bisou? Philippe Bisou, growth expert, author of Aligning the Dots. He is the founder of Blue Dots Partners. Definitely check it out. Terry Cannon, he's a global connector, works a lot across the country. I'm very lucky to call him a friend. Thank you, Terry, for joining me today. And thank you for the introduction, Terry. This really, I know Philippe and I have talked, you know, one off, you know, between now and when we first met. And so just want to thank you for just making the introduction. This is great. And thanks for being part of the show. So with that, we're going to close it out. And all of the show notes, including the TEDx talk, will be in the show notes. I'll have LinkedIn connections for both Terry and Philippe. And with that, thanks for tuning in to the Global Business Builders podcast. Should I say ciao? I don't even know what I should say. Bye.
2: Like- <laughs> you, can say, you can say, oh, oh wow. wow. But I want to thank you, Warren, and thank you, Terry. And by the way, if you check out my TED Talk, I think it crossed the million mark, the million views mark today or yesterday. That is exponential
1: growth. Congratulations, (laughs) Philippe. Good stuff. Everyone should check it out.
2: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you both and really enjoyed it Thank you. Ciao. Likewise. Ciao. (laughs)